You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. I thank you for this section of Acts chapter 9 and pray that you would speak to us this morning. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 23 as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 23, all the way through verse 43. And, and as you're turning there, I do just want to say a quick thank you. We'll have a, um, an official thank you at the end um, from our children's pastor, Jared, um, with a little video as far as VBS. Um, I uh, think that it was a fantastic week, and so a huge thank you to all of you guys that served um, this past week in VBS, and I'd like to formally invite you all to come back tonight as we celebrate that from 6 to 8 with hamburgers and hot dogs and some fun water games and slides and stuff for the kids. Uh, but I did hear a story that you might be interested in, and, and maybe you can get ahead of any rumors that might be floating around out there in the community about Covenant Church. There was a five-year-old in attendance, and I may have some of these details wrong, but there was a five-year-old in attendance that got in the car with their mother, and the mom asked, well, what did you learn at VBS? That, that God is a turtle. <laughs> and the mom was like, oh, okay. What else did you learn? Well, that Jesus is a turtle. Okay. Anything else? The Holy Spirit is also a turtle. The mom then began to pry and ask more probing questions to come to find out that the child was hearing eternal in Dolan's southern drawl and, and just thought that Mr. Dolan was teaching her that Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit were all turtles. I'm, I'm, that's how some heresy begins. And I just wanted us to get out in front of that just in case you start hearing things in the community about us being the turtle church. But I thought that was hilarious actually. Um, this morning in Acts 9, it, it's, it's going to be very simple. Um, like, I, I, I don't know how long this will be. I, I don't have really like three main points. I have one main point this morning that I think the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to see. Um, this, this message will be easy for Zach to title. Um, if y'all didn't know, Zach titles everything after I preach it. Because um, I'm not really that creative or good at titling things. But this one should be relatively easy. Because this morning, the main focus is that we are encouraged by the truth from these stories that Jesus changes things. Jesus is the difference maker. That's true for me and that's true for you whether you realize it yet or not. But the simple point of these powerful stories is that Jesus changes things. And, and believing in the living, sovereign Lord of the book of Acts means living with the expectancy that Jesus changes things. I'm convinced in my own life and as I've counseled others over the years and even just being a, a, a husband and a dad... One of the most devastating feelings for not only humans, but Christians, is the feeling of hopelessness. The feeling of the overwhelming negativity that can just completely take our minds over. 
Some of you deal with that at a level that I don't understand. Some of you see negativity and face negativity and, and, and you seem to somehow muster up whatever it is inside of you to sort of fight that negativity with all of the positive that you can come up with, even if it's make-believe. But hopelessness and pessimism and negativity are devastating. They're devastating to our own experience as humans. They're devastating to our understanding of the gospel. They're devastating to our relationships. It's just devastating to be overtaken with hopelessness or negativity. And and the feeling that this is the way it's going to be forever and nothing is ever going to change that is a really difficult feeling to overcome. The thoughts of, this is just the way that I am, and I'm never going to change. Or, or this is the way that my spouse is, and they are never going to change. Or this is the way that my children are, and they're not going to change. Or this is the way my work life is, and it's never going to change. Or maybe you think, I'm never going to find work that I like, or to work in general. Maybe you struggle with saying, this is just the way my community group is going to be. And nothing's ever going to change that. This is the way society is, and that's that. It's been this way for far too long. It's just not going to change. And we use words and have thoughts like never and always. And these can be very difficult very, very difficult to live with these kind of thoughts. So imagine yourself in the early church, and most of you have been with us through our journey in Acts. Imagine yourself being a part of this young church that has experienced a a, a new thing from the Lord. Like they are the new thing from the Lord. They now have the Holy Spirit living in them, and, and they are the first church. They are the first Christians. They're seeing signs and wonders. There are certainly a lot of positive things going on around them, but all of the power movers and the shakers of the day, all the people that they've looked to over the years for hope and trust and leading and guidance hate them and, and, and have even set themselves against them so much so that they're dragging them out of homes killing them and arresting them and totally disrupting their lives and just want them to be pushed away. And it has everything to do with their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but their willingness to proclaim the hope that the Lord Jesus Christ brings. Imagine being in their shoes with no weapons, with no army, with no legal protection at all. And it seems like, and I think it would be a fair assessment, that everybody else is hostile towards us. Would you not be tempted to be pessimistic? Again, I know some of us personality, like some of you are like, well, I'm pessimistic about way less than that. Which is true of most of us in our pessimism. We're not being chased down and killed and assaulted and arrested Because we love and proclaim Christ. And so there would be a temptation to be pessimistic. There would be a temptation to feel hopeless. And I I think that, not making it right, but I think it's the way we tend to be. But I I don't think it's the way we have to be. 
In fact, I think the Bible is emphatic. And what I think these stories are listed here to help us understand and see is that these Christians, even though there was real pain, there was real hurt, there was real persecution, real suffering, they weren't hopeless. They weren't hopeless. And they had a tremendous amount to look to because Jesus changes things. Now, so, so I don't think pessimism is the way we have to be. I don't think it's the way that we should be. And primarily, and this is the simple point, if you don't hear anything else, this is, this is why I want to fight as a, as a man and as a Christian man to believe this way, and I want you to join me in that fight. It's because I believe that we still have a living, sovereign Lord, Jesus, who changes things. And so let's look at verses 23 through 25. And, and, and what I'm going to do this morning, in these narratives, I think it just serves us best to read through them. And I'll give you some commentary along the way. And then we'll pause to kind of recap. And then I'll give you a few things to walk away with at the end. But the, the main point of all of this is that Jesus changes things. Verse 23 of Acts 9. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Him is Saul here, okay? So, so, so this is still about Saul. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples, so, so there have been many days that have passed, obviously, as it just said. And, and Paul, Saul has gained some disciples at this point. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And so how does our understanding of this text and, and our title, Jesus, Jesus Changes Things, apply to these first few verses? Well, Luke drives home this point, I think, by letting us know quickly that the persecutor, Saul, remember? He was the one ravaging the church. Is now what? The persecuted. Well, if you pause and anybody that wants to give an honest assessment of this story would go, well, why? Jesus. Like that's the, that's the reason. How did Saul go from persecutor, hater of Christians, and just a matter of a moment turn to, and now days have passed, the persecuted? Well, the answer is because Jesus changes things. And, and in verse 23... Luke tells us that the Jews in Damascus had plotted to kill him. So Paul is, I'm trying to call him Saul, okay? So just know, when I say Paul, I mean Saul at this point. Saul has made his way to Damascus as a converted Christian. And so he made his way to the place that he was going to kill Christians. And now these Jews that are in Damascus that are fully aware of who Saul is and expected him to come with power and the legal papers so that they could kill these Christians and arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem to be tried and sentenced and probably put to death. They're going, what, what happened? And so now Paul, Saul, is the one that's being hunted instead of being the hunt. Hunter. And so his disciples help him escape through the wall. Now, again, if, if you just read this with no context, then you're not really blown away by how much Jesus actually changes things. But we know the context, and so we should be blown away by the fact that Jesus changes things. Because of Christ, because of Christ, Paul is viewed differently from his peers in the world around him. And that, that's normal. Now, not to this level, hopefully, but that is 
in fact, normal. Let's move on. Verse 26. Verse 26 has Saul in Jerusalem. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Uh, I do not fault the disciples at all. At all. And so we're going to make a big deal about Barnabas in just a second. But I don't necessarily think that Luke intends for us to contrast Barnabas and the disciples in the way that we contrasted back in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, there was a clear contrast there with Barnabas' generosity and that he sold everything. And then Ananias and Sapphira that really wanted to look generous more than they wanted to be generous. And the Lord took care of that deal. No need to rehash that. But here Barnabas is going to show some exemplary action. But I don't blame the disciples. I mean, th- there was no... Like, like they weren't able to check his tweets or his Facebook status, or to kind of read the newspaper and see what's going on with this guy Saul. As far as they know, this could be a trick. And I think that would be an honest, an honest assessment, and one we would all understand and think would be justifiable. And so verse 25 or 6 says, And they were all afraid, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27. And, and this is beautiful. But Barnabas took him, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul, later to be Paul, always loves Barnabas. And I don't know if this is why, but as we see Barnabas through this story, he's going to be one of those guys that is just so incredibly consistent. He's so encouraging. He's so generous. He's so steady. And here he shows this by standing up for Paul. This is Saul's first advocate. He's standing in the gap for Saul. Because at this point, Barnabas reads the room, if you will, and he knows these guys are not going to let him in, and they're going to miss. They're going to miss what God has done because at this point, the disciples don't even know and understand just how much Jesus changes things. But Barnabas had seen it firsthand. So 28 goes on. It says, So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so in verses 26 through 30, we've seen that, and I think you agree with me, that you can't really blame the disciples, that Saul at this point is a social leper. The disciples don't really know what to do with him. His former peers and colleagues, they definitely don't know exactly what to do with him. What they want to do is they want to kill him now. And they want to get Saul off the scene because they know something has drastically changed Saul. And that something is a someone. And it's Jesus Christ. And so, in verse 31, this, this to me is just such a little golden nugget here for us. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Were you anticipating that? If you've read it, you've read it. But I mean, seriously, like, like when you read this for the first time, like in the way that this has gone, it, it sort of catches us off guard to read that they had peace, that is the church, and, and was being built up 
and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Sometimes God leads us besides still waters. Sometimes He leads us to these green, tranquil pastures and lets us rest and eat and drink and enjoy and have peace. And this is one of those moments for the church. But again, as I'm studying this, and I'm like, man, like trying to figure out, because this is sort of a shotgun approach from Luke. Like he's got three stories back to back to back here that are you're like, how do these exact, like, how do these fit together? And, and my biggest takeaway from them all, and this was a turning point for me in this particular section, is when I read verse 31, I'm like, what changed? Why did they have this peace? Why did they have this tranquility? Why did the Jews chill out for a little while on them? And the only logical response is Jesus. But did you notice two words that typically don't go together in verse 31? And walking in the fear, that's one of the words, of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Typically you don't see fear and comfort together. This fear is, as many of you know, is a reverential fear. It's, it's an awe. It's an understanding of the power and the vastness and the majesty and the might and the righteousness and the holiness of the God that they serve. And it's an acknowledgement of that and it's more of a disposition towards that of reverential fear which always leads to worship. But the way that this powerful, mighty, majestic, holy God has shown himself to these people. It's he's executed his power in a way that highlights his mercy and his love. And he's shown them that by his very presence being with them. So the only way that anybody can ever have fear and comfort at the same time, and they're not button heads and they're not going against each other, but they're working together, friends, it's in the gospel. It's, it's in the gospel of Christ because it's at the cross of Christ that we see the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the wrath of God intersect with the love and the mercy of God. And so they have fear of the Lord, comfort from the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And then we should expect what it says there at the end. And it multiplied. And all of this, all of this is because of Jesus. There's no one else in this story that could get credit for anything that's happened. It's all Christ. Verse 32 through 25 and then through 35, excuse me, verse 32 through 35 and verse 36 through 43 are two stories that could have easily been left out. It flows really nicely from verse 31 of chapter 9 to verse 1 of chapter 10. But I think what Luke's doing here is he's letting us know that there's more going on in the life of the church than what's going on around Saul at this point. And he wants us to know that, that there's still this ministry that Peter has that's going around. And so 
if you look with me in verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went here and there among all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Verse 33, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, with clarity, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 36, a little bit more detail in this story. It says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Now, Charlie and I went back and forth when we named Abigail. It was between Abigail and Dorcas. We stuck with Abigail. We just felt like her middle school years would be unbearable if we named her Dorcas. So I see why they mentioned Tabitha as well. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Oh, listen, I, I can't name names, but there were so many women that came to mind that are a part of Covenant Church. When I thought about this, I don't want to say Dorcas, but like Tabitha mentality. This Tabitha-type reputation of a woman who was full, overflowing with good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us. Without delay. Verse 39 says, So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And so picture this scene. This is a beloved sister in the Lord. A woman that has obviously made an impact on this community. And there's a very specific community that she has and that she has been a part of and that she's ministered to. And it's the ministry of these widows. And so they're all lamenting in this upper room as her lifeless body lays there. And, and, and as they think about her life and reflect on what she's done, they have these tunics and they have you know, these shawls or these blankets or these, I'm trying to think in our context, of dresses or whatever it is that, that she's made them and she thought enough of them to take the time to make this for these specific women and to give it to them. And if you've ever received a gift like that that's handmade, homemade, not provoked by anything other than just charity, just the goodness of the heart of the person that thought of you and loves you and wanted to express that love towards you, in some act of kindness and exercise the gift God had given her to do that. What a beautiful picture of how God intends for us to relate to one another. And so they're reflecting on Tabitha's life and ministry. But they don't want her dead. They're sad. They're sad that she's dead. And so verse 40 says, but Peter put them all outside. So, so he sends everybody out. And by the way, both these miracles that are listed here from Peter are, are parallel closely to a couple of miracles that Jesus did himself. He sends them all outside. 
and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her. Can you imagine this? A lot. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon. A tanner. So what all did Jesus change in this last section of Acts chapter 9? Well, I've made a list and it's not comprehensive. There are other things. But, but, but the first thing we have to mention as far as reflecting on these three stories and what did Jesus change, the, first, the, the very first name we have to call is the name of, of Saul. Saul went from an enemy to a friend. He went from a killer to a brother. He went from a hater of Jesus Christ to a bold proclaimer of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I know we talked about this last week, but I don't know that we can emphasize this enough. I don't know that there's a way to overreact about what Christ did in Paul. I don't think we can make too big of a deal about what Jesus did to change this man. But it's evident that it was Jesus that changed him. The second are the disciples. The disciples began with a fear of Saul, and then they're led to trust Saul. And if, as we're going to see this story continue through the book of Acts... Basically, the driver of this thing from here on out, of course, is Christ, but using the vessel of who? Paul. So Jesus works through Barnabas to unite them. Also, when you think of the disciples, who would have ever thought that the church would get to any point of tranquility? Even if it was a season. Who would have thought that growth and peace and being built up would happen in the midst of such hatred, especially if you consider the people that hated them and that were after them at this time. Jesus changes things. Third, Aeneas, sick and bedridden for eight years. I know most of us in here are older, but I think we can all agree that eight years is a long time to be in a bed. Whatever was going on with Aeneas, it had him in the bed for eight years. And you want to talk about pessimism. You want to talk about negativity. And those of you that currently struggle with or have struggled with or will struggle with one day some sort of chronic pain or illness, there isn't anything else that can take over our minds more than physical pain, chronic pain. It's depressing. It leaves us in despair. It makes us feel what? Eight years is a long time. And Peter goes to Aeneas' bed and he doesn't say, Hey buddy, just listen to me and I'm going to heal you. So you go, what changed in Aeneas' life? How did Aeneas go from bedridden to, did you catch the, making his bed? Look, I rarely even make my own bed. I'm sorry to confess that. And those of you that have kids in here, I apologize. Kids, listen to your parents and make your bed. But I kind of understand your argument. You're going to get right back in it in 10 to 12 hours. Okay? Like, I, I understand that. But listen, Aeneas, Aeneas, the sickbed days were over. 
Make it up. Make your bed. Because Jesus Christ has changed things. Then you got Dorcas. We wish he'd have changed her name, but he gave her better. Dorcas was dead. She was sweet, but she was dead. She was a servant, but she was dead. She had a lot of friends, but she was dead. She was going to be missed because she was dead. Until the sovereign power of Jesus explodes. Explodes. In a manifestation of his ability. In giving her life. The life giver made the difference. And gave life where there was no And Peter did all he could do. He knelt down. He knelt down and he prayed to the one that could do what he couldn't do. Okay, so Peter does what only he can do, and that's kneel down and ask God to do what? What only he can do. So who changes things? Jesus. Jesus, and most importantly, and, and listen, these signs and wonders, I've dealt with this, and we're going to deal with this a couple of times. Um, uh, you know, we are a church that believes that, that, that the gifts of the Spirit do continue, but these signs and wonders are very, very specific to the early ministry and life of the church. And it would be wrong for us to seek out these type miracles, and that be our primary focus and our primary drive. You with me? Because the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle that we see, the greatest thing that Jesus changes that isn't temporary because Dorcas, she's going to die again. Lazarus was raised out of the tomb in John 11, but you know what happened later? He, he died again. And Aeneas was not the only bedridden sick person in the community. And so the gospel's not about physical, temporal prosperity and tranquility. But when God sees fit to bust in, when we ask Him and show us His power, all of those little, they're not little, but all of those miracles are pointing to a greater healing, a greater rest, a greater power, and a greater life that comes through this last thing that Jesus changes. And the biggest miracle that still today and, was, and in the first century is that sinners are made saints. That's the greatest miracle of the gospel. Because we can be really healthy and go straight to hell. We can have good legs <laughs> that work good and go straight to hell. And so the focus and the ministry of the church is always the gospel of Jesus Christ primarily. But we pray and we seek and we ask God to do in different situations. I, I don't know every context, but surely some of you have a context that you're going, I just don't think it's ever going to change. I think it's right and necessary for us to ask God to change it with the overarching hope to know that one day we will wake up and it'll be Jesus face to face and everything will be changed. And so... Nobody would have dreamed that any of this would have happened um, at this point in Acts chapter 9. But Jesus changes everything because that's the way that he is. And that's the way that we should think about him. And that's the way that we should think about our own lives. And I, I feel strongly that we'll see and continue to learn that the book of Acts is written to encourage us again and again. That the Jesus who began to do and to teach on earth is now and still alive 
and has omnipotent power and continues to do what he began to do and will always do what he's always done. It's not a different Jesus in Acts than the Jesus that we have today. So I want to leave you with these three things and we'll wrap up. Takeaways. Jesus is alive, sovereign, and changes things. That is still true today. Second. And, and I, I think I don't have to say this. Most of you that have been, like, I'm talking to me. Okay? So, so don't, like, please come to me if you would like to be counseled and let, like, like, like Scripture's what I got, but I don't want you to think that you can come to me and you go, oh, well, Hank, number two, because Hank preached this, he never falls victim to a hopeless attitude. That, that is false. There's a good chance that when we start to talk and we get close that you are the one doing more of the encouraging and counseling than I am. I mean, I don't want to disappoint you. Like, I just want you to know how human I am and how much Christ is a necessity in my life. But don't fall victim. We, us, we should not fall victim to hopeless attitudes. If, if you are a Christian this morning, fight hopelessness. Fight against hopelessness. Why? Because Jesus changes things. He's alive, he's sovereign, and he changes things. But I want to be very clear. If you don't know Jesus this morning, and you feel hopeless, you should. You should. And if you're tired of that, if that hopelessness is wearing you down, the only place to fix your eyes and your hope and your faith that alleviates that burden of hopelessness and gives us a glimmer of hope is in Jesus Christ. Third, takeaway, pray persistently. Again, I already emphasized this, but what did Peter do? What did Peter do? He knelt down. He knelt, I don't know if he sent everybody out because he's like, this may not work. So he's like, hey, y'all leave. I don't know that. I have no clue. But he prayed persistently. And so ways to, to fight against hopelessness is, are, are, are to pray persistently, trust God's providence, and long for Jesus to change you. I want to end with a, a quick story, Joseph. You can come back, bud. Um, so I, I have a funeral this week of a man that I've known for many years. And, and, and this guy, when he was 60 three years old, went to rehab because he struggled with addiction for 35 years. 35 years. Cocaine. He went to rehab, had a family that was torn apart, that was broken. His family tried to relate to him the best that they could, but it was hopeless. He'd been doing the same thing as long as any of them had known him, he wasn't going to change. 35 years. Like, I, I'm not comfortable saying that they had all given up on even praying for him. But it's likely. It's likely. And he was gone for four months to rehab. And the first time that I saw him after rehab, I was pastoring a church in Demopolis. And he walked in the back door. It looked a lot like this. And he sat down. 
And this was a this was a Southern Baptist church, okay? So it doesn't get real loud. All right? Hands don't go real high. Right? But we started singing about the blood of Jesus. I'm going to turn my mic off. Hallelujah. I saw people. And there we called him Big Ed. There was Big Ed standing there. That was about 10 years ago. He still struggled. But I walked up to him after that day. All he could say when he came back was, How could Jesus save me? How could he save me? After all that I've done. And even though Big Ed struggled and struggled and struggled, even up to his death this past week, he had a sensitivity and an excitement every time he heard the gospel. And he's one of those guys that somebody would have thought, and, I, and it was said, he's never gonna change. Friends, Jesus, he changes things. Believe that. Pray to that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.